When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sean Patton. What you mean you ain't gonna give me that poo-poo? You always give me the (laughs) poo-poo. That and more. But before that, you know, sometimes it feels like there just aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working nine to five. So if you're making time-consuming trips to the post office, good Lord, you need a better way. That's why you should use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you get postage when you need it, the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those postage meters plus you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so Get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Thievery Corporation behind me now. Oh my goodness, do we have an outrageous, super fun episode for you guys this week. We're calling this one Smashed. (laughs) Situations that just exploded or fell apart or someone was just very, very drunk. Not sure why I said that like a Jewish grandmother, but that's just how we roll. Like Jewish grandmothers. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from my good friend Beowulf Jones. He is the host and producer of the Risk Live show out there in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you noticed, but he's also the owner of the remarkable name Beowulf Jones. But before that, oh my God, I'm so excited to have her on the show. Michelle Buteau, she killed it at the Risk Live show that we did at the San Francisco Sketch Fest. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that these two stories were told in very different 
venues. Michelle's story was told at a comedy festival with a, the audience was in the dark and the audience was very raucous. Beowulf, on the other hand, told his story at a Risk Live show that we did in front of a very well-lit and very well-behaved audience at a public library. So the ambient noise may be a little bit different in these recordings, but both stories are just jam-packed with great stuff. You can find Michelle at michellebuteau.com. And here she is now at the Risk Live show at San Francisco Sketch Fest 2016 with a story we call Fly Girl. What's up, bitches? So, I'm originally from Jersey. Um, nice, Jersey people in the house. I usually don't tell people because I feel like it's a speech impediment. It's just, I'm so embarrassed. And the part of Jersey I'm from is sort of like Fargo meets the Jersey Shore. Like, it was Italian and Polish and, and, like, Irish. And, you know, if you were Polish, you were very exotic. And there was, like, one Indian family and one black family and then, like, us. Like, the light-skinned Caribbean people. My mom's from Jamaica my dad's from Haiti. And everyone would be like, damn, shouldn't you be darker? And I'm like, it's called colonialism, bitch. <laughs> They'd ask me all types of questions. Like, why don't you have a basket of fruit on your head? That was my guidance counselor. <laughs> so dealing with all these questions all the time at 17, like a senior in high school, like I knew I was too cute for a whole zip code. You know what I mean? I knew I had a chance to be the fat Lisa Bonet. I'm like, get me the fuck out of here. I still do. And so I applied to a bunch of schools in Miami because I'm like, that's where it's at. Like, I need to go to Miami. And I finally got into this uh, university called Florida International University. And I was supposed to go to university in Miami, but they drug tested. I was like, no, no. Um, <laughs> and international wasn't even the word. Like, people were like, oh my God, Michelle, you are so smart. I'm like, me? And they're like, yeah, your English is so good. I'm like, oh, I'm American. <laughs> But Miami was amazing. Like this kid from like Trenton, Jersey, I went to Miami, the air was warm. My farts smelled like pineapple. I was like, oh my God. There was palm trees everywhere. Every store I went into, all I heard was Gloria Estefan's rhythm is gonna get you. I'm like, when? When is that rhythm gonna fucking get me? There were so many like affluent Caribbean people everywhere. It was like the Caribbean Cosby show without the rape. It was amazing. <sighs> and I didn't have to explain to anybody why I look like this. I just was, and it was awesome. So this is also the mid 90s, and I was also a bit of a wannabe gangster bitch. Like a lot of lined lips, a lot of eyeliner, a lot of Carl Kanai cross colors, a lot of who you call on a bitch, a lot of that. <laughs> Nobody was calling me. I didn't even have a cell phone. It's fine. 
I had the Malcolm X pendant and the book in my back pocket. I never even read it, but I was like, do the right thing. Very militant. But listen to boys to men. It was a lot. It's a lot of emotions. Like my friends didn't even want to go out with me after a certain point. They're like, girl, this is a new shirt. I don't want to go out with you tonight. I know we're going to get in a fight. I don't want to fuck this shirt up. Like, I would be at a restaurant and I'd be like, who is she looking at? I know she ain't looking at me. Who the fuck does she think she is looking at me like that? And they'd be like, that's our waitress, relax. Why is this bitch so crazy? So that was me. But it was also a very Jersey thing to be so angry all the time, right? Trust. Still is. <laughs> Don't fuck them. And I also want to be a fly girl. I wanted to be, okay, in Living Color, anybody. I wanted to be a dancer so bad. I, I wanted Paula Abdul to tell me what to do. Rosie Perez, I was like, oh. I wanted to be a backup dancer for Usher when he was young. I'd be like, my way, my way, well, I'll stay Like, I just want to do all that. <laughs> so this was me, okay? And then my freshman year in college, I went out dancing one weekend with my friends. Went to this like teeny bopper place, like 18 to 21. And I had a gang of grape soda. And I was like, let's dance. <laughs> and we were hitting all the hot moves and shit. And I was like, oh, Janet don't know what she missing right now. It was great. <laughs> and I remember that night, because that's the night I saw the most beautiful man I had ever seen in my life. He was like Kid from Kid and Play. That's the light-skinned one. He was like him, but just like a little bit fatter. It was beautiful. He was tall and gorgeous with that curly hair, that high top. And he was like dancing, like he was the tallest one in the room. I'm like, oh my God. And he had like these crazy baggy khakis on and like this really baggy polo shirt. And it didn't even look like it was clearance. It was like regular price. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. And then he had like this gold crucifix that hung real low and would bounce. And I was just like, put it in my face. <laughs> like, I didn't realize what a lady boner was till that point because he also had this really baggy, like camo green fishing vest on. <laughs> but he wasn't a fisherman. <laughs> And I just looked at my friend, and I was like, so many pockets. <laughs> and I did that thing you do on the dance floor when you're 18 years old, you know what I mean? I tried to make eye contact, and I was like, no. And then he looked again, I'm like, no. And then like, he somehow like beanie-manned his way over to me. <laughs> I felt like, you know how like short women are like, oh, tall guys, I feel like a woman. I don't know what that's like, because I have a sturdy gait. <laughs> but next to this guy, I felt like a skinny white girl. So I was like, oh my God. And like, I could just smell his neck and it smelled like Jacquard Noir. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And we danced, like, call and answer, like, the whole time, like, a lot of this. <laughs> and we danced the whole night, and he didn't say anything to me till the end when the lights came on, and he goes, you good? And I was like, yeah. 
And then he gave me his number. I gave him my number, beeper numbers. And <laughs> yeah, I'm old, bitch. <laughs> and he beat me the next day. And I remember as we were walking out to the parking lot, we both had the same car, Mazda Protégés. And I was like, oh my God, we are so adult. We are so in love already. And it turns out, as we were talking the next day for hours and hours, both of our moms leased our cars for us. And I'm like, we're amazing. (laughs) So I was new to Florida, going to school there and um, studying communications. And my dad, who's this Haitian guy, was just like, you know how to speak English, you can communicate. Why are you taking communications? I'm like, let me do my thing. And Eric, his name was Eric, also spells rice. He um, didn't go to college. He worked at Best Buy and sold weed. I was like, this motherfucker is adult. He's good at math, he's good at electronics. That's why he had all them khakis. I was like, let's go. <laughs> Every time I talked to him on the phone, I had butterflies in my stomach. Like, I didn't even know what that was. I was talking to my friend. I was like, how come every time I talk to him, I feel like I want to take a shit? She's like, <laughs> do you not know anything? And he was my first everything. Like, I don't know if you guys remember the first time you fell in love, but I was falling in love hard. Like, he was the first one I did everything with sexually. Like, I had hooked up before, but I had never, like, been in a relationship. And he was the first guy ever to be like, come sit on my face. And so I did. And he was like, get up, I can't breathe. I don't know, I need more direction. But it was wonderful, I mean, you know, we were making plans and and time felt like it just fucking flew. Freshman year passed and sophomore year passed and we were still together and I was like going strong, coming up with like names for our imaginary kids and we made plans to move in together and get an apartment by the Olive Garden with beige carpet and white blinds, you know, real adult shit. And now I'm a junior in college and I still just love the fuck out of him. And I noticed though, three years in that his mom's house didn't look like my mom's house or his friend's house. You know, in my mom's house, there was pictures of me everywhere from um, graduation and field trips and all this other stuff. And he didn't even have any of that stuff in his room. Like back in the day, we had collages, you know what I mean? Like we didn't have cameras on our cell phones and shit. So you'd have to go out physically with a camera, okay? And take some pictures, print them. Do you know, it's a camera where, you, okay. <laughs> And you'd cut out all those pictures of you and people and put them up on a little board and be like, look at all the friends I got. (laughs) And if you were a good friend like me, you made doubles. Sometimes you would upgrade to like, you know, from glossy to matte and give it to your friends and be like, hey, bitch, put me in a collage. (laughs) But Eric didn't have any of that stuff. And I was like, boo-boo, you need to get your collage game on point. 
And he was like, oh man, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I was like, you are so cool. <laughs> then one night I had a really bad dream and my mom told me it's because I had spicy food. <laughs> and I had this dream that Eric told me he never graduated high school. So I called the next day and I was like, boo, I had this crazy dream that you told me you never graduated high school. And he was like, Michelle, I didn't. And I was like, the fuck? <laughs> and he was like, honestly, I never graduated high school. And he started crying. And he's like, I don't even know how to read very well. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So he went into like this whole story and I knew that his dad died when he was young. But apparently when his dad died when he was 10 years old, he left the family with a lot of debt. And his mom had to work three jobs to pay off the debt and to keep him afloat. And he was depressed in fifth grade and just dropped out of school and never went back and no one even noticed. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, like I don't even know how to process this shit. But my parents have been married for 48 years and they're dead inside. And I'm like, that's what love is. <laughs> so I go... I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to help you and we're going to fix this. Like, I was some Coldplay song. I'm just like, and I will try. Like, it was so stupid. But I was like, I'm going to fix you. And so I stayed with him and I tried to find him like nighttime classes and all this other stuff, but he always had an excuse why he couldn't go. And this is when, guys, you know you have to leave a relationship when you start saying shit like, but you said you learned how to read from me. that's when you probably should go. <laughs> but I also never been in love so hard before. So I was like, how do I just break up? It was like one of these relationships where it took me like over a year to break up because we always had something planned and I really loved his family and he loved my family. Like, how do you break up with someone just because they won't learn how to read? And I started going through my mind, like how the fuck did I not even know this? Like a low budget CSI detective. I was like... <laughs> Is this why when I write poetry, you always have me read it to you? I thought you were a lazy guy. This motherfucker didn't know how to read. Like, is this why we always go to the Olive Garden, you order the same shit? I just thought you loved lasagna. This motherfucker didn't know how to read. So by this time, I have graduated college and I'm moving to New York City to get a job and to live my life. And I know that we are different people, but I still love him. He's still my first phone call and my last phone call. So as I move to New York, he gives me a hot cell phone. He has two hot cell phones that he's stolen from Best Buy. And I don't know why, I already had my own cell phone, but I was like, this is so fucking hot. Like, what am I, Carmela Soprano? I'm like, give me that hot cell phone. We'll have conversations that Big Brother can't even, like, I don't even know what's happening, right? So he comes to visit me in New York a couple months later and the cell phones are sitting on the bed and they're like identical. So the phone rings, I assume it's for me, and then it's my phone. And I pick the phone, and I'm like, hey. And this girl on the other end goes, is Eric there? And I go, who's this? And she goes, who this? <laughs> and I go, who this? <laughs> And that lasted way too long. Like, we did it a couple more times. But my heart fell in my stomach, and I felt like that feeling I had to take a shit again. And I knew exactly what was happening, even though I had no idea it was happening at the time. 
And I hung up the cell phone and I looked at him and he looked like he knew what the fuck was going on without me even saying anything. And I had like this Angela Bassett hell moment. <laughs> I was like, shoop, shoop. I was like, get your shit, get your shit and get out. And I just threw his Jordans and his fucking polo and everything else that was probably fucking stolen out the fucking apartment. And he was just like in his like polo boxers. He's just like, but we're eating chicken palm. I'm like, get the fuck out. And then he looks at me. He's like, how do I get to JFK? I'm like, figure it out, bitch. And I close the door and I was like, how do you get to JFK? Like, that's what he has to ask me. So I'm like fuming, like I'm shaking. I don't even know what to do, who I call. I'm like 911, like who the fuck? 311, I'm like, who the fuck? <laughs> then my phone rings and I pick it up and it's her. Now, I don't know how she got my number. The bitch is resourceful. <laughs> and she says, you don't know me, but I know everything about you. Then I had the sinking feeling again. I was like, okay. And she's like, I know your grandma's birthday is March 1st and she lives in Jamaica because Eric House sits for you every year. And I go with him to your parents' house and I fucked him in every room. Yeah. And then she kept talking about all these instances and I just like blacked the fuck out. It was like white noise. And I hung up the phone and I did some prison push-ups. Like I'll look Queen Latifah set it off. Like it was real. I was just like, woosah, woosah. Like the whole shit. And I had to leave the apartment, so I went to Dojo's, this like really cheap Asian place where you could just eat for $4. And I had a village voice, like I was so broke, and I had a village voice, and I was going through it, just trying to figure out what to do, where to go. And I saw this ad that said, do you have a story to tell? Come take a stand-up class. And I was like, oh, I got a motherfucking story to tell. <laughs> oh, I got a motherfucking story to tell. <laughs> So I took a stand-up class, and my first jokes were about him. Um, do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, you don't have a choice. Um, my first joke was about him. It's um, lines at Disney World remind me of my ex-boyfriend. Three hours of waiting for a two-minute ride. Come on, that is good for a newbie. That was great. But I was like, oh my God, this is what writing is. Like, this is fucking amazing. Like, I couldn't stop. I was like, this is my thing. I just have to write about him. This is how I'm going to get through it. You know what I mean? Like, fuck the alcohol, fuck the push-ups. I'm going to write about his dick. Like, that's, why. <laughs> that's, that's the best revenge. And then blogging came out, and I started blogging about him. And my friends are like, girl, you better be careful. You're using his first and last name. <laughs> and I was like, I don't give a fuck. That motherfucker can't read. All right, here's the 411, folks. Say some gangster is dissing your fly girl. You just give him one of these.
There was a Martin Scorsese movie a few years ago called The Wolf of Wall Street. Did you guys see it? Was it good? Did you like it? (laughs) Yeah, I never saw it myself. Uh, No need. I uh, didn't see it because I fucking lived it. I I did. This is not a bit. I uh, worked on Wall Street as a junior stockbroker. For all intents and purposes, I was Beowulf of Wall Street. Uh, And I didn't have any financial background. I never studied finance or anything like that. I'll tell you how I got the gig. Uh, The day before I worked on Wall Street, I was this iffy, clueless, vulnerable idiot working in Queens, New York for a company called American Software Technologies. Uh, That name's a bit of a misdirect, as the company was neither American nor dealt with software technologies. Uh, It was a job placement center, and I came across a one-line classified advertisement. It said, WANA, literally W-A-N-N-A, wanna be a stockbroker, which to me sounds like a reality show. Like, so you think you can be a stockbroker? It was... Want to be a stockbroker on Wall Street? Call 212 blah, 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 blah. So I did. I called 212 blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And the next thing I know, I'm at 40 Wall Street in a cobbled together suit interviewing at Epson York Investment Banking on the 17th floor of the Donald Trump building. Now, for those of you who don't know who Donald Trump is... He's something of a media figure. Uh, Lately, they've been writing a lot about him in the papers. If you open up your Cleveland Plain Dealer or your Akron Beacon Journal, there could very well be an article about him today. Uh, The job interview was very short. They just kind of looked at me and were like, yeah, okay, you'll do. Uh, Which, in contrast today, I can't even get hired at Jamba Juice without submitting an online application, cover letter, and three separate interviews with three different managers. But you gave me one look, and they're like, oh, he's exactly what we're looking for. You start now. Um... claim to fame was they had the IPO, the initial public offering, on a stock called It was kind of a big deal. Like, everywhere in the building. You work for S and you have the IPO on To this day, I do not know what is. I mean, it sounds cool. It sounds vaguely science fiction-y, like someone Thor might fight. Like, hey, have you seen Thor 3? This is the one where he goes up against Um... So until I could learn the business, my job was just doing cold calls all day, which sucks because no one likes being cold called. It it makes them angry. It makes them hostile. So uh, I was supposed to get 10 leads to turn into my senior brokers, but it turns out even getting one lead, never mind 10, was very, very difficult for everyone in the office except me. I can't explain it. I was charmed. And it's weird because I've never been charmed before and I certainly haven't been charmed since. Maybe it's just because I did not give a fuck. I, uh, I was trying to be a comedian, so to me, this whole Wall Street thing was just a big joke. The punchline being, Beowulf on Wall Street? Ha 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 ha. Um, <laughs> So I turned out to be very good at this, and I would get my 10 leads, and then I would just turn them in, and I would go home for the day, because I have a very firm policy against being bored. 
I'm totally inflexible on that. If I'm bored, I'm out. And my brokers realized that this was an issue, that I was good at my job, but I was rapidly losing interest. So they came up with what they called incentives. I remember I walked into work one morning, and the most senior of my brokers, Brad, he was waiting for me. The door to the office was open, which was weird. The door to their office was never open. And he goes, hey, kid. They, they called me kid because this was 10 years ago. I still was a kid. He goes, kid, get in here. So I went in, and he goes, close the door. I closed the door. And side by side, all three of my senior brokers are seated. And Brad points at a desk, and he goes, see that? Get on it. And it sounded odd, but at least it wasn't boring. So I was like, well, okay. And I went up and I jumped on the desk and Brad goes, you're a comedian. Make us laugh. And I said, fuck you, Brad, just because you think. And he goes, no, shut up. You don't know what I'm talking about. And at this point, all three brokers pull out a fat wad of cash. And Brad says, each time you make one of us laugh, we will drop a 20 on the ground. And uh, I got to admit, 2005 Beowulf Jones was not very funny. But this was not a discerning comedy audience. So the first thing I did was establish my mime microphone. You know, like the mic stand was here, the mic was here, and I started tapping it like, is this thing on? Can you hear me? Huge laugh. Three $20 bills fall on the ground. So I'm like, all right. So my opener at the time was, hey, guys, I'm Beowulf. I'm from Canada. By the size of my nose, you can tell I'm Canebrew. Huge laugh. Three $20 bills fall on the ground. You know, I just got the new book by my favorite author, Robert Dicom. Have you heard about this guy? Dicom? Those are two things I can't wait to do. Huge laugh. Three $20 bills fall on the ground. Now, this next one is a weak effort. This joke is a weak effort. I said, everybody's talking about this artist, MC Escher, but it's bullshit. Dude's not even a real MC. That joke sucks. Huge laugh. Three $20 bills fall on the ground. And then I go, and what's the deal with the fifth third bank? Everybody knows there's not five thirds. There's only three. Now, the Fifth Third Bank is a regional bank. I don't even think it exists in New York. But they didn't care. It was a huge laugh. Three $20 bills fall on the ground. So I go through my whole set. Each joke kills. And at the end of it, I say, thank you. That's my time. Uh, I jump off the desk to uproarious applause. I scoop up all the bills. And I just walk out the office and go home. To this day, it is the most money I have ever made doing comedy. <laughs> Uh, so at this point, uh, the incentives really started to change me, uh, because the money I was making just from doing the job, it paid my rent and left me with enough that maybe once a month I could buy a DVD or two. But with these incentives, I started for the first time to get kind of stupid money and money changes you quick, especially because I had never had money. I mean, I've seen money. I've, I've been around money, and I have friends who have money, and it shames me to say this, but I think this is just human nature. I would covet the money. 
And I used to joke that Vegas is where white men go to learn to be assholes, but the same can be said of Wall Street, because I turned into an asshole really quick. If Scorsese was directing Beowulf of Wall Street, this would be the part where there's my montage of excess, is whatever Rolling Stone song he still hasn't used is playing on the soundtrack. (laughs) I remember even walking down the street in a nice suit now, uh, not a cobbled together one, and thinking, I make more money than you, and I make more money than you, and I make more money than you, and I make more money than you. And it was all because of these incentives. Some of the highlight incentives, uh, $1,500 for eating five Big Macs in 10 minutes. $750 for letting them hit a golf ball off the top of my head. Um... Let's see, what were some other ones? Uh, I got, oh, $1,000 for letting them tase me. Um, $2,000 for snorting up these enormous lines of hot sauce that just made my nose blow up like one of those Navy rafts. Like, (laughs) And I would tell my friends this, and they'd be like, doesn't it bother you that you're just being degraded by these people? No. Because I was making money, and I was young, and at this point in my life, the only thing I knew about Dignity was it was the name of a song on Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, Volume 3. <laughs> the incentive that sticks with me the most, every Friday at Closing Bell, Closing Bell is when the market closes at 4 p.m., we would smoke joints in the office, and the entire back wall of the office was just a giant window and it was illegal to open the window Uh, but Brad must have bribed a janitor for a key and it was the weirdest key I've ever seen it wasn't like a house key it had this odd handle and looked like a really long thin hollowed out copper tube like a pen with the ink taken out I don't know it's a very insignificant detail but for some reason I am mesmerized with this key so they open up the window entirely uh, essentially the entire back wall of the office and the air just comes in like and uh, Blaine who's another one of my brokers goes kid I want you to go out the window stand on the ledge and walk from there to there five thousand dollars And Brad said, that's ridiculous. You can't go out the window. We're 17 floors up. Just the wind alone will kill you. And I didn't say anything. I looked at Brad, and then I looked at the window, and then I was off. And Brad fucking galloped. He galloped like a pit bull on a racetrack. He galloped after me, and he tackled me in midair. Let me tell you a little something about Brad. Here's his backstory. Before he reinvented himself as a Wall Street fat cat... He was an alcoholic police officer. And one day, he was on duty, and he was drunk, and he beat the ever-loving shit out of a suspect, for which he went to jail for three years. This is the guy who just fucking tackled me and slammed me against a wall. And he goes, you idiot, you can't go out there, you'll die. And I'm like, it's $5,000, I have to take that chance. (laughs) I'm still kind of pissed off about it. I think I could have done it. 
At this point, uh, the structure of my day changed. I would come in in the morning, knock out the 10 leads, and by this point, I was working in the office with my senior brokers, which made all of my colleagues jealous, but I was better than them, so fuck them. And uh, I would spend the morning doing my leads, and then I would spend the rest of the day studying for the Series 7. The Series 7 is the test that you need to pass in order to get a stockbroker's license. And, guys, it's fucking boring. And I hate being bored. So it really came as a relief to me when Brad said, anyway, this afternoon I'm flying in porn stars for us to fuck. And that seemed a little out there even for me. But, you know, hey, I was willing to rise to the occasion. And I was like, all right. And Brad goes, no, not for you. And I was like, what do you mean not for me? He goes, not for you. This is, you have to study. We don't have to study. This is for us. You stay here and you study. And I was pissed off because I was part of the group, I thought, and I was all grumbling as I went to lunch, and uh, I got in the elevator, and I was all pissed off, and without knowing it, sort of realizing what happened, I suddenly came face to face with him. It was sort of like that scene in Ben-Hur when the dude's kneeling, and then he looks up into the eyes of Christ. I was face to face with Donald Trump. He was there with his Trump scowl and his Trump hair and his Trump bronze skin, in his Trump suit, and he had this bright red tie that I'll never forget. To me, it just looked like a million-dollar bill, and my eyeballs filled with dollar signs. And his, his power, his wealth, his influence, I just remember it sort of vicariously started flowing through my veins, and I thought... I want what he has. I want what everyone in this building has because I don't have it and I want it. And something sort of clicked in my brain and I walked out for lunch, but instead of getting any food, I went to a strip club and I paid a Czechoslovakian stripper $300 to pretend that she was sick so she would leave work and then she took me to a hotel where they pay by the hour. I didn't even know that that existed and we did a bunch of cocaine and we fucked. And I was very happy about this, although it was kind of odd because I think my humanity was still within me trying to get out. And she sort of saw me and she was like, are you okay? Uh, Yeah, 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 I'm fine. And she's like, are you sure? Are you okay? And I was like, yeah, but I guess I needed some maternal sort of attention. I just remember we left together and we got on the subway and me and this Czechoslovakian stripper were cuddling. Um, it was actually kind of a very sweet scene. Uh, I could not wait to get back to work and tell my brokers about what happened, uh, especially the part about the cuddling. Uh, or, I'm sorry, except for the part about the cuddling. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but when I got in, they were livid. They were furious, and I was mad at what I thought was a double standard. I was like, okay, how come it's hilarious when you fly in porn stars to fuck, but I go get a hooker, and suddenly it's 9-11 all over again? And Brad practically flips over his desk as he gets right in my face, and he goes, because we keep giving to you! We keep giving to you, and giving, and giving, and giving, and giving, and it's time for you to start giving something back. And you can't give us anything until you pass this test. You're treating this whole thing like it's a fucking joke. The Series 7 is no joke. It is the third hardest test you can take. First is the bar.
car. Second is CPA certification. And third is the Series 7. So fuck your incentives. They are gone. You are going to come here. And morning tonight, you are going to study for this fucking test. And I know you will because I'm going to watch you do it. And so that turned into my day. And I was studying. And guys, I wanted to want it. I really, really wanted to want it, but it was so boring. Uh, Some parts were cool. Like, I was never much for math, but I was freakishly good at calculating stock options, and uh, that really raised the eyebrows of everyone at my firm, which sort of made me an asset. I knew that. Uh, But that's only a very small part of the exam. I would say literally 75% of it just deals with bonds, as in government bonds and corporate bonds, and they are boring. And another thing they are is unfucking necessary because nobody takes the Series 7 to work with bonds. It's like getting a pilot's license not to fly, just to drive the plane up and down the runway. <laughs> so I take the test. You need a 70 to pass. I got a 69. I take it again I do alright and now my brokers feel like they own me and I'm like yeah but I'm still doing comedy like that, that's my thing and Brad goes oh you want to spend 50% of your time telling jokes that's fine but you give 5,000% of your time to us and that was my last day on Wall Street I've never worn a suit again I, I don't even have one And I just went back to being a broke, clueless, vulnerable, idiot piece of shit. I lost everything immediately. I I mean, I certainly didn't save any money. I was too busy spending it all on drugs. I lost my money. I lost uh, my access to women. I I lost the really good drugs. And uh, three years later, I was having one of those dark Thanksgivings of the soul. You know what I mean by that? Where it's like... A time where you you sort of look at yourself and realize every decision you've made in your entire life is wrong. And uh, I thought, i got to make a change. i got to go back. I will throw myself at Brad's feet. I will beg. I will grovel. I will promise I will never tell a joke again if they will just take me back. And I Googled my brokers and everyone at the firm, from my brokers to the head of the firm to the SEC compliance officer, they're all in prison. <laughs> was a scam. was your basic textbook pump and dump boiler room scam. It was a penny stock, which is a stock you buy literally for a penny. And the American dream is it'll turn out to be Microsoft or Apple. And they artificially inflated the shares as much as they could, and they defrauded investors to the tune of over $30 million. Two families, according to the articles I read, lost their entire life savings. And how do you even begin to process guilt like that? I mean, I know who I am in my heart. I would never take part in something like that. But the fact is I had taken part inadvertently And something like that. So the question remains, am I complicit? I'll tell you what the legal answer is. The legal answer is no. Because it's a matter of public record that I worked at that firm. And the SEC is known for doing their due diligence. So either they deemed me completely innocent or I was just such small fucking potatoes it didn't even matter. 
So that's what I tell myself during those dark moments that I'm innocent. But during the night time, it's different. During the night, I, I know who I am. During the night, I can admit that I am too spineless. I don't even have the balls to look up the names of these families who lost their life savings. I'm, I'm too spineless to know the consequences. I'm too spineless to know if anyone committed suicide, if anyone had to be institutionalized, what were the ramifications of this? Because there's not a mea culpa in the world that would make someone forgive and forget that. And the reason is, what they were victims to is unforgivable. It's not like I can just show up at their house, pop a Mentos, and be like, how you like me now? I'll leave you with this. During the prime of my Wall Street glory, I was over at this girl's house. Uh, she was perfect. She was everything I wanted. And it was, you know, cocaine and fucking and cocaine and fucking cocaine. Watch the 10-part Ken Burns series on the history of Manhattan. That was her idea. You know, cocaine and Ken Burns, that old cliche. And um, suddenly I came to. It was the morning. I was late for work. And I was like, oh, fuck, I gotta gotta go, I gotta go. I didn't have time to go back to my apartment, and I certainly hadn't intended to spend the night there. So I didn't have a change of clothes. So I just rushed to work, and as soon as I walked in, my senior broker points at my pants. He goes, ew, what the fuck is that? And I look down, and it's a giant cum stain. (laughs) And uh, I said, oh, it's um, ranch. (laughs) And he goes, oh, okay. But he knew. And I know he knew. And he knows I know he knew. And I'm in the bathroom frantically trying to scrub it out with soap and water. And what that cum did to my pants is what Wall Street did to my soul. It stained it irreparably. And no matter how hard I try to get rid of it and to just scrub it out, it remains forever stained.
This is Risk. This is Broken Bells behind me now. And we just heard from Beowulf Jones. Before that, a little interstitial by Mr. Jeff Barr, our editor. Well, now it's getting to be about Valentine's Day. And this Valentine's Day, you can make it one that you will both never forget with this amazing offer from AdamandEve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to adamandeve.com, and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, toys, lingerie, DVDs, and there's more. With every order, you'll receive the Adam and Eve Romance Kit for free. It includes a toy for him, a massager for her, and a little something, a little surprise, plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. They'll also throw in free shipping for the entire order. It's a hell of a deal. So go to adamandeve.com today for the special Valentine's Day offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, free shipping when you enter the offer code R-I-S-K, that's RISK, at adamandeve.com. Next up, we're going to return to that San Francisco Sketchfest show This time with Sean Patton. You might remember Sean. He told that story called 500, which was also set in Louisiana and is just as insane as this story you're about to hear. We featured 500 on one of our best of Risk episodes. So man, oh man, was it a treat to have him back. You can find Sean at seanoliverpatton.com. And here he is now at San Francisco Sketchfest. It's Sean Patton with a story we call White Out. It's too late to change your mind. You let loss be your guide. Hello! There's so much shit up here! All right! Time. Uh, I don't, I drink a lot. I drink a lot. It is part of my, I'm raised in New Orleans. I have the privilege of having drunk relatives and drunk parents and just drunk. And so it's part of my life, drinking. I'll never quit because I'm not bad at it. I'm pretty fucking good. So, however, I do not, under any circumstance, black out. It has never happened to me once. I'm in my 30s. I drink all the God, five times a week. Five nights, yes. Five nights a week I drink. I've never blacked out once in my entire life. And I've tried very hard. I have had those seven hour drinking sessions till five in the morning where I mix bourbon and vodka and gin and Oxycontin and fucking chartreuse and Zima, remember Zima? I drank all of it, 1999, one night. Like, I do not black out. I experience other levels of drunk. One of them I call medieval drunk. It's happened to me quite a few times here in San Francisco where I get so wasted, I, I become fucking knight. I become Sir Sean. My friends are like, hey, you want to go to another bar? And I'm like, yes! A crusade! 
I see a homeless man, like, beware a warlock. <laughs> no, give him but a shilling, yet heed my warning. Look not into his eyes, for there be spells. <laughs> That's the happy version. The sad version of that I call thespian drunk. Self-explanatory, I just become a little drama boy, like... My friend's like, hey, Sean, you want another beer? Uh, no, dear friend, look away from me. <laughs> I am ugly, look away, avert your eyes. I wish not to scar thy memory with my hideous being. Run away from me so I may chase you. That is the only form of friendship I deserve. I am the human condition on wheels. But I do not black out. I do not. And a lot of people say to me, well, that's a, that's a blessing. Nay, it's a curse. Because I still get to that level. I still get to blackout drunk level where logic and reason become the Mr. Hyde versions of themselves. I still get there. Only I remember it all. I don't get to say, I don't remember, because I do. In, in HD. On a 75-inch plasma screen in 3D. And the memories were shot on film, 70 millimeter. I remember all of it. In fact, what often ends up happening is I'll call a friend to apologize for some crazy shit I did. And thus, I remind them of the crazy shit I did that they'd forgotten about because they blocked out. So many times I've heard friends of mine say things like, oh yeah, you did kiss me. Or, oh yeah, you did bite me. Or, oh yeah, you did try to light my wallet on fire. Or, oh yeah, fuck you. I call it whiteout drunk. Because it's where you try to go back and cover up the mistakes you've made. But they're still there. They'll always be there. The closest I've ever come to blacking out was May 2001, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There you go. I was at a house party thrown by some co-workers of mine. I worked in a kitchen. I was 22 years old. They were 25. So they were a few years older, and their party was a few years nicer. In the sense that we weren't drinking cans of fucking natural light, you know? We were drinking cans of PBR. That's, that's the difference between 22 and 25-year-old nice. And I remember just pounding cans of PBR like I was in a rush to build a tin fort out of those cans and with the remaining cans start a meth lab inside of it. I remember getting hammered. The so that moment where you're like, yep, I'm here. I remember it. I remember then having to pee. I remember standing in line to use the bathroom. I remember loudly Outkast's Bombs Over Baghdad playing. This was 2001. Stankonia had just come out. It was a fresh track, okay? The chorus to that song, don't pull your thing out unless you fit to bang it. I remember thinking, I want to pull my thing out and bang the toilet. I had to piss. 
I remember removing a cigarette, flipping it in my mouth, and catching it on the first try, and trying to pretend like I do it all the time. And then I remember the equal amount of surprise after I lit it when I realized I'd caught it backwards and just lit the filter. And I remember that taste of burning cigarette filter, and it was quickly forgotten when I looked into the kitchen and saw the woman I was in love with making out with another man. Mm. I'd loved her since the moment I met her. It was maybe an hour, hour and a half before <laughs> that. I remember not truly being able to remember her name to actually get mad and confront her. Like, how the fuck did you do that, Stan? Andrew? Stan? Andrew? Stan? Andrew? Stan? I knew it was either Stacia or Andrea. So I just meshed them into Standria. How did you fucking do this, Standria? She was making out with a gentleman named Sweet Tea. That was his name. Sweet Tea. He was a fuck. Now here's the thing about Sweet Tea. We all knew Sweet Tea. He was an older gentleman. We all worked in the kitchen, so he sold us all weed and pills. He was a gangster. But he was a suburban thug, which are the fucking worst. If you don't know what a suburban thug is, it's the person whose parents are both dentists, like Sweet Teas were, both dentists. He was raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, son of dentist, yet he was still hard as fuck. Gangster. You don't know what it's like in my hood? No, we don't, Sweet Tea, because it's a gated subdivision. We don't have the code. None of us have the code to make the gate open. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd walk a mile in one of your many, many pairs of sneakers, I imagine. The fucking loser. She was sucking face with him. And that broke me. You remember your first heartbreak? It hurts. And I remember in that moment, I was no longer Sean, the innocent boy. I was now Sean the wolf. It's a fucking animal now. And I remember I was no longer gonna wait in line like a sheep to use the bathroom. No, I was gonna piss in the street like a goddamn wolf. I piss where I choose. And I remember whilst pissing in the street like this animal I'd become, I was suddenly ambushed by my colon. That's that moment when you gotta shit now. Where you're faced with two options. Shit into the infinity that is outside of your pants. No regrets. Or shit into your pants and regret it for infinity. But I was a wolf now, an animal. And when you're a fucking animal, there's always a third option. And I remember choosing that third option, which was, I'm going to take a shit on a random car parked out on the street. <laughs> and I remember my drunken logic so clearly, which was, I'm going to shit on a car like Standard shit on my heart. I was a wolf. And wolves are kind of like dogs. And when dogs get mad at their owners, they do things like tear up their shoes or piss in the bed. 
or pull up the carpet. Standria owned my heart and she pissed me off. So I wanted to let her know it by pooping on a stranger's cock. That's really the only explanation I have for it. I can remember feeling like, I just want to ruin someone's night. But then I remember remembering that I would need something to wipe myself with. Because I'm not a savage. Yes, I was about to take a dump on a stranger's automobile. But even in that state, I care about things like hygiene. It's very important. I remember then going back into the house party where there was no more line for the bathroom. The bathroom was now vacant. I remember going into that bathroom, locking the door behind me. I remember staring at that toilet for a while. It was almost like we had an argument. Like that toilet said, what you mean you ain't gonna give me that poo-poo? You always give me the poo-poo. And I replied, because it ain't your poo-poo, it's my poo-poo. I decide what to do with the poo-poo. And the toilet said, you ain't strong enough to make poo-poo-based decisions, you weak. So I flushed it, sent it away with no prize. The tyranny of the toilet was over. There was no toilet paper, of course, standard house party, but there was a bunch of clean white hand towels. Folded and clean. I snatched up one of those. Fine, so be it. This will last. I then remember choosing the automobile. You. Subaru Outback. Wrong parking place, wrong time. I remember the debate. Roof or windshield? How many of you, by a round of applause, would have chosen roof? Okay. How many of you would have chosen windshield? Okay, okay. How many of you don't think you'd ever find yourself in that situation? Wow, that's cute. May you never be broken then. The correct answer for the handful of us who read Sun Tzu's The Art of War is roof, okay? You shit on the windshield, they're gonna see that, if not when they walk up as soon as they get into the car. You shit on the roof like I did, it was kind of dark. They could miss it. They could drive a couple blocks and stop at a stop sign and whoop, here comes that shit. <laughs> Element of surprise. Inertia plus gravity equals fuck you, stranger. It's Bernoulli's principle. That's how it's written. I then remember just circling the car for a while, staring at my accomplishment and then deciding that everyone else needed to see it. And I drunkenly ran back into the house party and announced, I just saw someone shitting on a car and then they ran away. And I joyfully watched as all the people ran to see whose car had just been defecated on. They came back in, some laughing, some crying even. And I think I truly expected Standria, the woman I loved, 
to come back in and be a little more interested in me now that I had some journalism skills. You know what I mean? I report the hard facts. Instead, however, Sweet Tea came back in, Sweet Tea, and announced, I'm about to murder whoever just shit all over my dead girlfriend's car, man. Yeah, I know, I was there. Whoops. Now, upon hearing the threat of murder, I had what's known as a physical blackout. Mentally, you're still there. But physically, your body senses danger and alert. We are alert. Danger is afoot. Evacuate. I skedaddled, got into my car. I was in no place to be behind the wheel of the car. I was very fucked up. My apartment was only 10 minutes away, but I was far too hammered to drive 10 minutes away. So I drove 90 minutes away to my parents' house. I think if you live close enough to mom and dad, you've had the same reaction where you got wasted one night, knew you were going to regret it the next day, and thought, I got to go back to the beginning. I got to go back to where it all started and remember who I was. And the next morning, I woke up in my parents' driveway, engine running, headlights as bright as that 9 a.m. sun. That could have been a moment, couldn't it? That could have been a real, like, huh? What the fuck? But no, it wasn't, because I don't black out. Instead, it was a, huh? Oh, good, I put it in park. And I reached into my back pocket, and I was like, oh, what's that? But I knew what it was as soon as I made contact with it. I was like, oh, yeah. It's a clean white hand towel. Clean as the moment I'd taken it off that rack. Because I guess the only time I ever blacked out was when I was supposed to remember to wipe my ass after shitting on a dead woman's Subaru Outback. And in my other back pocket was absolutely nothing, which I found peculiar at first, because what normally goes there is my wallet. Don't worry, it hadn't fallen out of my pocket and was on top of the car when Sweet Tea... Fa- it, it wasn't in Sweet Tea's possession. That's far too Hollywood of an ending. No, no, no. I knew exactly where my wallet was. The night before, on that drunken drive home, I threw it into the Mississippi River. <laughs> While crossing it for a second time... Because the first time, I was going the wrong way. And I remember everything about that decision. I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking hammered. If I get pulled over, I'm going to jail forever. Unless I get rid of all evidence of me. (laughs) Now they can't arrest me. I'm just a ghost. I'm lucky I'm not a ghost who pooped on the car of another ghost. (laughs) Now, a couple days later, I decided to call my friend Jeremy, who was throwing the party, because I was going to apologize and confess to pooping on the car. And And I call him, and like it's happened so many times before, he instead goes, wait, you don't know? 
And here's what I later learned, okay? What, what we, like he explained to me in the moment. Basically, Sweet T's girlfriend had died about a year earlier. But she died of completely natural causes. That was very sad. However, Sweet T, this is what he told me. Sweet T was so fucking upset about the poop on the car that he caused a ruckus at that house party. He was just trying to fucking murder people. So Jeremy, whose house it was, had to call the cops. The cops showed up. Sweet T was going bananas. They fucking tried to arrest him. He resisted arrest, so when they finally arrested him, they now had probable cause to search his car. In the glove compartment of that Subaru Outback, they found a Glock 19 that they traced back to two shootings in the month prior. To my knowledge, Sweet Tea is still in Angola prison. So, it turns out that my intestines are like Watson and Holmes. You know what I'm saying? There's a premonition. And the cops didn't arrest anyone for the shit on the car because that's not illegal. It's America. <laughs> and all I know is this. Like, so many times I've told people what they did the night before. They blacked out and they're all, their reaction's always like, oh God, I need to quit drinking. I'm going to fucking die one day. But I remember after hearing all this from Jeremy, my thought was, oh man, I need to keep drinking. Because I save lives. Justice gets served when I'm wasted. Thank you very much, San Francisco. episode folks this is with lions behind me now hey be sure to uh, oh no i thought i was about to erase something everything's fine i was about to say be sure to share this episode with friends it's so damn funny and don't forget that risk has our first show in our new home in new york at the bell house in brooklyn on the 27th of January, and then on the 28th, we are at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles. On the 10th of February, we're in Carborough, North Carolina. On the 12th of February, Austin, Texas. The 13th, Houston. The 14th, Dallas. Now, the pitches deadline for those four shows has already passed, but if you really do have a burning need to, to pitch us, 
Carborough, Austin, Houston, Dallas. You can always reach us at pitchesatrisk-show.com. On the 10th of March, we return to Chicago, Illinois. The theme is ecstatic. So pitch us for that one, guys. On March 26th, it's Washington, D.C. And the theme that night is powerless. In April, these dates have yet to be set in stone. But we're thinking of coming to Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland, Oregon. So stay tuned about that. Remember, we teach storytelling also. We teach it one-on-one over Skype or in-person workshops in New York, in Minneapolis, and in Los Angeles. We do corporate workshops, and we have our video lecture series that you can download and take in your own time. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. And if you love what we do, make sure you stop by risk-show.com. You'll find a support us page there and you can make a financial contribution any amount you like we dearly appreciate it we are listener supported and we have every intention of moving onward and upward folks today's the day take a risk You're still here? It's over. Go home.